Hello and welcome to Chairside, conversations about careers in dentistry. This podcast series from the British Dental Association and sponsored by BDJ Jobs explores the unlimited, unexpected and maybe even unknown opportunities that qualifying as a dentist opens up to you. I'm Andrea Ogden, a general dental practitioner and the BDA's undergraduate and career development lead. In each episode, I'll be joined by dental professionals who discuss their journey and the path they took that changed the course of their career. Today, we're talking about portfolio careers, or more specifically, additional or voluntary roles that many dentists perform outside their clinical dentistry jobs. All three of my guests are experienced general dental practitioners who have taken their passion for dentistry and developed a separate outlet alongside their clinical roles. From charitable work to dental education to committee involvement, they're all superb examples of what it's like to have a portfolio career. But how do these opportunities come about? And how do you actually manage having multiple working commitments? Today, I'm chairside with Ian Wilson, Samir Khan and Hannah Woolnow. Ian qualified in Edinburgh in 1987 and is the co-founder of Bridge to Aid, a charity that trains local healthcare workers in the provision of emergency dental treatment in some of the poorest communities in the developing world. Welcome, Ian. Uh, Thank you, Andrea. Thanks for the opportunity. And thank you for joining us. Samir qualified from Barts and the London in 1996 and is currently a Foundation Training Programme Director for the Oxford Scheme, which is part of the Thames Valley and Wessex Deanery. And he also is a Director for a Postgraduate Diploma in Implants. Hello, Samir. Nice to be here. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's lovely to have you with us. And my final guest, Hannah, qualified from Cardiff in 2006 and is currently the chair of Suffolk's Local Dental Council. And she has officer roles at the BDA branch and sections and is the chair of English Country Council. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Andrea. It's lovely to see you. And you. Well, we're a small group, but there is so much experience and interesting stories to share here. So I won't delay. Ian, I'll start with you. Yours is really quite an incredible story. Take me back to the beginning. You graduated and you've been an associate dentist or you were an associate dentist for three years. What happened that led to your involvement with dental charity work? Um, I did. Well, as you say, I'd I'd graduated from Edinburgh. I was loving working uh, as an associate after about three, four years uh, in the northeast of England. And... um, no issues with that at all, but I just felt that there was something more about my profession that I could get involved in. Um, I, I come from a, a faith-based background, I try and say that uh, without a lisp, um, and uh, I really wanted to put my profession but also my faith into action, um, and I explored the opportunities of, of going overseas um, and trying to see how my dental skills could be used over there. Uh, and cut a long story short, Andrea, uh, I um, got in touch with uh, uh, an organisation called Mercy Ships, and I walked into my first uh, African dental clinic uh, in Togo, in West Africa, and um, my life has never been the same since. So after that initial experience with the Mercy Ships, 
Correct me if I'm wrong. You went out to Tanzania where you met your wife. And a few years later, you both sold your house. You left the UK to set up a primary healthcare center in Tanzania. I mean, wow, that that is quite a step to take. How did that opportunity come about? And why was it that you decided to seize it? Well, I think once, once, I, once I realized that actually I could make such a huge difference to the lives of thousands of people with my dental skills um, um, and having done several trips into West Africa and, as you say, then going into East Africa, um, having met Andy, my wife, in the middle of nowhere, um, and we uh, in the middle of Tanzania, and we we felt that actually that was the place where we we already had existing friendships in primary healthcare sector, already had friendships and relationships with the government, and um, the our colleagues in primary care in Wanza, um, which were headed up by the Aga Khan Medical Services, which is one of the largest primary private healthcare uh, providers. Uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, and they asked us, uh, would we consider going over and help them to build a dental clinic from scratch in one of their primary healthcare centres? And clearly you said yes. I'm guessing it was an opportunity that was just too good to refuse. As you say, we then looked at the whole situation and this was too good an opportunity to miss, uh, to explore both our passions. My wife, Andy, has a huge passion with the poor and the marginalised uh, in terms of community development in rural and remote areas, uh, which was where we met. And we found ourselves in 2002 moving out to Mwanza, um, sold everything, left our jobs, sold the houses, well, rented out the houses, et cetera, et cetera, and began the new season of our lives with two small children uh, living in uh, sub-Saharan Africa in Tanzania. Gosh, that's incredible. I mean, what a great story and what a life-changing opportunity and experience. I mean, that must have been. Uh, I think um, what I find really interesting is just how organically it all evolved for you, that it wasn't pre-planned, it wasn't organised from when you were a student or an associate. It really just came from doing one thing that you so enjoyed and then obviously taking it from there. Which I think, Samir, that's something that perhaps you can relate to in terms of your work within dental education. So tell me how that happened. So when I was um, came back into practice after two years uh, as a maxillofacial SHO, I was working quite close to where I'd qualified at Barts and London, uh, and I was working in a foundation training practice. So just by association, I was um, um, working uh, near the practice, near the hospital, went to the hospital uh, to meet my old teachers. Uh, and they kind of headhunted me to say, come and take over one of the retiring um, lecturers, clinical lecturers in oral surgery uh, to take over and, and his session on the Thursday. So on Thursdays, I started teaching. Uh, oral surgery to the undergrads. I did that for seven years, stayed there for seven years, just started it because I always wanted to keep one foot in the maxillofacial, in a hospital um, kind of role because I was always uh, thinking I would go on and do medicine and max fact because it was a um, 
interest of mine at the time as an undergraduate throughout foundation and definitely uh, as a MaxVac SHR. So I ended up as a clinical lecturer one day a week. You then meet lots of other clinical lecturers, become part of a network, uh, and I was working part-time in a foundation training practice. So when I eventually bought my own practice, um, it was just natural to apply to be a foundation trainer. So I became a foundation trainer and part of the DFT network or VT network um, in London, as well as uh, teaching one day a week and being part of the academic uh, um, uh, department in maxillofacial surgery at um, Barts in London as well. So I had a few teaching roles uh, always from from very beginning when I started um, in practice uh, back in 2000. As someone who's also got a background in dental education, one of the things that I've been asked in the past is, why do I do it when I'm giving up clinical and potential learning time? What do you say when you're asked that? I guess what I really want to know is, what are the benefits to you of being involved in dental education? My greatest um, passion and my greatest reward has been the way that I've uh, molded my mentees uh, and my trainees and seeing their success, seeing them taking on roles, roles that I used to do. Uh, not just, I'm not talking about clinically in practice, I'm talking about as, as trainers themselves, becoming TPDs, becoming trainers themselves. It just is a huge reward for them to follow in your footsteps and, and to be honest, you even do better than what we did. I used to see it as my midweek break going into the hospital to do some teaching, just doing something different being in, uh, like I said, in clinical practice, same four wars all, all week long. I just needed the break. But the benefits, the uh, non-financial type of, of benefits in terms of meeting other people, the peer review, uh, um, the constant like um, advice and support from senior lecturers, uh, it kept you uh, academically um, up to scratch as well as, um, I mean, just uh, being abreast of what's going on. Uh, I mean, you can do that through lots of different associations, LDCs, uh, BDA groups, any groups um, locally to make sure that you're not, because you can get quite isolated in general practice, even in a multi-surgery practice. Uh, um, you can find people working in silos in their own surgeries. Yeah, I agree. Dentistry has so much opportunity, but there obviously is the potential that it can be very isolating as well. It's interesting to me that you talked about the benefits of your network, keeping you abreast of what's going on. Um, because Hannah, I must imagine that really resonates with you as someone who also has a large network due to your involvement in dental committees. How did you first get involved? Was it as a student? No, no. I mean, I wasn't really involved in in any sort of student uh, politics stuff at all. Um, for the beginning of my career, I was very clinical focused. So I did quite a few different jobs to start off with. I worked in the prison, I worked in community, in general practice. Um, and then I got a job in a training practice and became an educational supervisor very quickly. And it was at that point that I suddenly started to get involved in the, the local committee stuff because it's the same people that tend to do everything they're the educational supervisors they also sit on the LDC and the BDA um, and are involved in what, what was at the time the PCT but now the local area teams um, and the local dental network so it tends to be the same people and once you start to build those professional relationships with them in one role 
you sort of get sucked into the other bits as well. Um, particularly if you show any kind of interest, because often they struggle to recruit people to do some of the more boring jobs. So if you express an interest and you're willing to devote a tiny bit of time, because it's not huge time for these things, if you're willing to give up a little bit of your time, then you, you will get sucked in more and more. And it does sort of snowball from that point. Hannah, when you said that, you know, they struggle to recruit people and why do you think that is? Um, I think I think there's definitely uh, a work-life balance thing, which a particularly younger dentist, you know, it's sort of drummed into us, particularly with all the you know the mental health stuff, and you know we are told very early on that we need to be protective of our leisure time, and everyone's very focused when they come into dentistry on the clinical aspect of dentistry. So you put a lot of time and effort into learning your craft and being at your paid job. The thought of then giving up an evening to go and sit in the room with a bunch of people you don't know, to talk about something that you don't understand for no perceived personal benefit seems a bit baffling. Um, so we don't tend to get a huge number of people in the in the earlier years of their career getting involved. It tends to be more the people that have always done it. So they've been sort of mentored in through somebody else and then just hung around because actually it's really interesting. And from a, a work-life balance perspective, you know, I, like Smith, the, the thought of spending five days a week within four walls is horrifying to me. I'm quite happy to work the hours. I just need the variety. So for me, having those opportunities through things like the LDC and the local BDA stuff to do other things that aren't clinical practice is fantastic because it keeps me fresh. It keeps me interested in what's going on. I know what's going on outside the four walls of the practice and it, it it allows me to enjoy the clinical aspect of it in a way that I probably wouldn't do if I was doing that all the time. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people that have got uh, what we'd call portfolio careers would completely agree with you. It gives you that level of variety, um, mm. keeps things interesting. So take me back to when you first went to that um, initial LDC meeting. What was it that that made you want to attend? Uh, yeah, I think it was an increased awareness of the fact that there was all this stuff going on and I didn't know about it. So um, curiosity, really. Um, as an educational supervisor, as I say, you suddenly develop these um, professional relationships with other people who are doing other things. And it, it just piqued my interest. I just wanted to know. Um, I'm just I'm really nosy. Uh, so I wanted to know what was going on. I wanted to know what I was missing out on and whether it was something that I should be missing out on or not. Um, and the fact was that I was allowed to go because any dentist is permitted to attend their LDC meeting. Um, and I just thought, do you know what? I just, I'm just going to go and find out what it's about. And if I hate it, I don't, won't go back. But I knew a couple of people by that point, I knew a couple of people that went well enough that I didn't feel like I'd be walking into a room full of complete strangers. And they had suggested that I might find it interesting because of the type of person that I was and the sort of things that interested me. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a complete punt in the dark. Was it, you know, the fact that you knew some people that were there? I mean, did you find it scary or intimidating at all, especially if you were going because you felt that you 
didn't understand what was going on? I mean, to be honest, I, th- I think I'm quite lucky in the respect of the fact that my personality allows me to ask stupid questions. I'm quite happy. I've always been quite happy to put my hand up and say, I don't know what you're talking about. Can you explain it to me? Um, because I don't feel that keeping quiet and being too shy to ask the question really gets you anywhere. But that's just very much my personality. Having said that, the majority of the people that attend the LDC meeting don't speak. And we have a chat, we have a drink and a coffee and dinner and all that sort of stuff, but there's no requirement for you to actually talk. And there are plenty of people that ask questions for clarity, um, but they will literally just chip in and say, I'm sorry, what does that acronym mean? I've not heard it before. Um, There are plenty of people that say nothing at all and then might ask a question later on to somebody that they know for clarity. Um, And then there are the handful of people that tend to be there representing the local dental network or the area team. And and those people, you know, GDPC, who've been to LDC Officials Day or conference, those people will then present the the topics of discussion, you know, that give back the information because that's all the LDC is. It's a, it's a communication channel between the local profession and what's going on nationally. So I think if you're, if you're the sort of person that doesn't want to speak, but does want to know, you are as welcome as somebody that wants to chat away throughout the whole meeting. I think that's really important to know, because I think, you know, for many people, especially if you're thinking about attending something like that and you don't know anybody at all, it can be really daunting to do something like that for the first time. But, you know, as, as you've said, you know, that others are probably just as keen for you to get involved as you are to do it. So I think it's perhaps it's just making that first step. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the the LDC, the people that are involved in the LDC, tend to be relatively sociable individuals. Um, they do it because they like that side of dentistry, the networking, the professional relationships, you know, the, the doing something outside your own clinical experience. So those people generally are quite happy to offer a bit of support and mentoring. You know, one of the things that is really useful to do is to look at the minutes of the previous meeting. That'll give you a really good grounding into what the conversation is going to be. And also it gives you the opportunity to find out what all the acronyms mean, who the important people that you need to know are and where they come from and what their background is. So that's why they know these things when they're presenting on the the topic. Um, If you've got somebody in the LDC who is happy to give you 10 minutes before the meeting, just to have a quick chat, then that's great. You know, and those people will be there. You just need to ask. Um, so ping an email or a phone call to the LDC secretary because they tend to be in the know. If they don't have the time themselves, they will be able to give you somebody to help you uh, to find out what you need to know to feel comfortable. Or just rock up. You're perfectly entitled to. You pay them money every month. Go and have a chat. Yeah, so just go for it. And talking about uh, taking that next step or leap as it may be, I mean, as we've said before, challenges don't get much bigger than selling up and moving your family across the world to start a healthcare centre from scratch. Ian, how scary did you find that prospect? It was very scary. Um, But at the same time, um, it was that, I remember before we went, somebody said to us, um, if you if you if you go, will you regret what you're going to miss here in the UK? Uh, and Andy, my wife, just flipped it immediately, which 
still blows my mind. And she said, but if I don't go, I may always regret the fact that I haven't done what I feel incredibly passionate about. Um, but just going back to what Hannah and Samir were saying, you know, all of us, what we're talking about here, we're talking about portfolio careers, but at the heart of it, we want to be connected with like-minded people within our profession. And, you know, what I've discovered going globally um, sounds very grand and dramatic, but I'm just connected with like-minded people. So I think for me going out, yes, huge, huge, huge step. Um, and you can only do these steps when you know that you've got real support behind you and it's it's you've done your homework, you've done your preparation. Um, but as we've said in the past, that I believe there are two types of people, those who look at something and we're all talking about doing stuff that's a little bit out of that five day week, four walls of the surgery. It's it's that thing. It's two types of people, those who look at something and go, I wish I'd done that. Or the other person who says, I can't believe that I did that. And and I look on our time before Tanzania. I look on our time when we moved out as a family with the support of our family, with support of friends, and then suddenly the profession, and this is what excites me. When we moved out, it captured the imagination of not only peers and colleagues, but also the profession where people saw, people just wanted to be involved in what we're doing and still are. And so you, you then look at then all the volunteers who come and the dental profession and the trade industry who support us with donations and you know, 600 volunteers over the last 15 years, et cetera, et cetera. So scary, but so fulfilling having taken the step to do what we've done. And I'm assuming that in taking that step, there was a fair amount of risk. Oh, huge risk. But, but, but life is about taking risks. Unless you risk, you never change, you never learn. You can, you can look at risk on the on on the on the on the micro you know it's i'm going to use a different different matrix band or i'm going to do a slightly different technique or i'm going to learn how to do implants because i've always wanted to learn how to do implants but i'm scared but i'm going to take a step or i'm going to take a risk and go to the ldc meeting because i really want to be connected because i'm on my own but i don't know anybody or you can sell everything and and travel three and a half thousand kilometers around the world but <laughs> There's a poem, isn't there, called Risk. Those people who fail to risk remain chained by their certainties and they never never learn, never grow, never change. And life's, life's about risk. Absolutely. I mean, any change you make to your professional or personal life for that matter is obviously going to come with a degree of risk. And I think that certainly with portfolio careers, there is a degree of, of risk, particularly if you're looking at reducing your clinical hours and potentially taking a drop in pay. Um, of course, the one that we hear of the most, and certainly the one that I've experienced, is the risk of overcommitting. And I'm sure that we can all attest to the fact that you can at times find yourself working more than five days per week. So how do you mitigate that? I mean, Samir, what would you say? Has has that been a risk or an issue for you? Yeah, uh, no doubt. That is um, overcommitting yourself, especially when if it's something that you are passionate about, especially if it's something that you uh, can see the rewards uh, and, you, and you want to get those rewards quickly. You want to um, 
uh, you want to progress quickly, you do uh, start to take time away from uh, whether it's clinical practice or your home life and, and devote to these other things. And it is important to keep almost compartmentalized or manage your workload so that you are giving certain sessions to this and the way that it would work is you have to have very understanding partners in, in your personal life, but also in uh, clinically uh, and in the departments that you work for, uh, and usually a very good manager and administrator who can tell you where you need to be and what your deadlines are uh, that are coming up. So you can, again, manage your workload, manage your time carefully so you don't end up uh, I mean, until one o'clock in the morning trying to finish presentations or, or articles that you've promised you'll send people, uh, it is important. But if it does become not fun anymore, it's time to get out. When it's not fun anymore, guys, if you're not enjoying it anymore, it is time to get out, to cut ties and move on. Indeed. If it's, I mean, you're absolutely right. If it's not fun, then you can stop and do something else. I think the key is just finding that balance. And obviously that's much easier to do when you're enjoying it or you're getting something out of it. Would you agree with that, Hannah? What do you get out of committee involvement that makes it all worth it? And what does it give you? I, I know what's going on. You know, and I think that's that's the biggest knowledge is power. You know, if you if you understand the systems under which you're working, then you feel like you have some, and also not only understand them, but if you've got an opportunity to help shape things, to help shape the way that the profession works, it allows you to engage with your day job in a much more meaningful way. Um, I, I know that there are things that I have done as part of my career in various roles with Health Education England, with the BDA, that have some kind of ongoing legacy. Um, And that's really exciting for me. That gives me so much pride as an individual, not as a dentist necessarily, but as a person that's contributing to the profession. And it's something that allows me to feel much more than the glorified carpenter that the the physical act of dentistry actually is you know i am much more engaged with the profession because of the things that i do outside of the dental surgery are there any projects or things that you've been involved with that you think that brought you a tremendous amount of personal satisfaction i think one one of the things that's sort of closest to my heart really is the quality diversity and inclusion work that the BDA are currently doing. Um, they had, they used to have a committee, um, which was disbanded a long time ago, that looked at sort of committee makeup and things like that. It has been reignited and that's a committee that I sit on. And I am very passionate about particularly the gender representation in the profession. Um, I am very proudly an angry feminist and I would like to see fair representation on our boards for women um but also for all marginalized groups you know we've got a very uh, culturally diverse profession that isn't always represented um and we need to make sure that we are harnessing the incredible diversity that we have within our profession to make sure that it is 
it, that it's evolving and progressing and changing. And those people that are put in those positions that allow them to influence the change of the profession, they need to be representative of all of us. And, you know, we look at our FDs coming through, they look like a very different group of people to the people that run our profession. And we need to push to make sure that that's not the case so that we are running it for ourselves. And it's it's developing, it's changing, it's getting there. But that's something that I'm extremely passionate about. And I, I am seeing the change happen. It's slow and it's frustrating that it should even have to be a thing, but it's happening. And any any part that I can play in that change, I will be immensely proud of. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that's that's fantastic to you know to know that you've had the opportunity to have have shared your opinion and to put your voice out there, and then to see that there's been some implementation as a result of that must be hugely rewarding. And on that idea of satisfaction and personal reward, what would you say, Ian? How has that journey that began all those years ago with the Mercy ships changed you? Moving out to Tanzania gave me a cultural experience for me and my family and my children that we we never would have had. Um, it helped me to grow as a person. You know, you, we talk about emotional intelligence. Gosh, I wish I'd known more about how to be self-aware and resilient and, you know, looking after my own mental health and well-being before I'd gone out to do all this stuff. I, I probably would have achieved far much more had I been aware of some of my own personal rough edges that needed to be knocked off. And, and then when you experience just the, the, the depth and passion of our profession, the, the dental trade profession, how supportive they were, but then also other clinicians, other peers who, who came out and helped us to train, bring in their expertise um, and helping us to work with the government you know, the key thing to remember here, we were there under the invitation of the Tanzanian government and still are. We were there not to bring conflict, but we're there to complement what the Tanzanian government were already doing. And so to see my peers coming out, catching a vision for that, catching a passion for that on a regular basis, guys, we would have people coming out as part of our teams going, these last two weeks have helped me to reconnect why I chose to do dentistry in the first place. And then they will go back to the UK to be better restorative, better academics, better lecturers, better implant surgeons or oral surgeons. They just need to step out of their comfort zone to catch, almost to catch the breath air, the, the fresh air of why they chose to do dentistry in the first place. And, um, and that's just been a huge privilege to be part of. And now step back and watch an amazing team here in the UK and in Tanzania and now about to be in Malawi actually running with the vision that was first birth first birthed all those years ago. How do you feel that having that experience in Tanzania has has helped you or what effect has that had on you now that you're back in the UK working in the UK? What has it done for me? It's it's changed my values. It's shaped my values. It's changed my mindset. My dental career is not about me. Uh, I have the real opportunity. It sounds it almost makes me sound like 
a northern mother Teresa, and I don't want to sound like that at all. But I, I, I love what I do, and I love the fact that I can help shape the next generation coming through within foundation training and, and mobilize and motivate them to care for the poor on their doorstep with a view of one day when the opportunities do open up again internationally, that actually, whether they come with Bridge to Aid or other organizations, they can go out to the poor in Africa or Asia or South America. You know, three quarters of the world's population don't live the way that we do. And three quarters of the world's population on a day-to-day -day basis live with the consequences of untreated dental disease. So we have a real, real opportunity, not only, not only to care locally, but also to care globally. And I love what I do. I absolutely love what I do. And, um, and being overseas uh, shaped that. So I, I find myself a real privileged uh, husband, father, and clinician. There you go. That was a bit dramatic, wasn't it? But it's the truth. And what a privilege it must be for your FDs to be able to benefit you know, from hearing, you know, your experiences and your passion and certainly to see somebody who really does love what they do and they can hopefully take that message forward with them into the rest of their careers. I think that's I think that's absolutely wonderful. I hope so. They think that go on a bit, but I hope so. <laughs> it's not the only ones. <laughs> And on that note about FDs, Samir, what do you tell your FDs who ask for advice about getting into teaching? I would say um, from early on, uh, look for opportunities like I did with the foundation training in, um, in practice. I was already working in a foundation training practice. So look at joint trainer opportunities, definitely uh, as a young professional. If there are any, I know it's much harder now to get jobbers. Uh, clinical um, supervisors, but they still do look for these jobs in secondary care from time to time. And that's a very useful academic network to be part of. Uh, but definitely the foundation training, uh, joint trainer um, opportunities, they will come up in your training practices. You may um, already be in a training practice or you may approach the principal of the practice and, and research uh, what it would be like to be a training practice. Um, they undoubtedly no training practices or they may have had some experience previously. You can find out about coaching and mentoring roles. I think the LDC, a lot of them run past schemes. Hannah can tell us more about that, but you can develop yourself as a coach mentor. There are coach mentoring um, courses and certificates that you can do uh, and join the LDCs as, as part of PAS roles. And HEE are always um, looking to recruit coach mentors as well. People help with the trainees and uh, dentists and different are referred to us as well so there's a few roles where you're supporting coaching and mentoring and it's about getting yourself skilled up uh, to do that role so that when the opportunities arise you can say yes i'd like to do something like that hannah how about you how should someone go about attending a local committee meeting they've never done it before yeah i think the key is is finding an in I mean, as I said before, anybody is allowed to turn up to an LDC meeting. If you're a dentist and you're paying your subs, you can go. Um, so you don't necessarily have to do any legwork other than just finding the time and date of the meeting and turning up. If you want more of a structured approach to it than that, then ask in the practice that you work in. Um, chances are there will be a dentist that you know that has been to a meeting. Um, it, they're not always fantastically well attended, but as I say, it's always the same people. So 
if you know an educational supervisor, they will probably go, they will probably know somebody that does. So just ask around. You will probably then be introduced uh, to to the people that, that have the information. And as I say, you know, the people that do these things, they are those people that put themselves out there for coaching and mentoring. They are the sort of people like us that enjoy helping other people to do things. So inevitably there will be somebody that would be more than happy to guide you through the process if you want some help. Otherwise, as I say, you're just more than welcome just to crack on, turn up. Um, other places to go, the local BDA events, so the branch and section meetings, they are, again, fantastic opportunity. It's almost certainly going to be the same people that are involved in the LDC uh, that are running those events. And it's a great opportunity for, for mixing and, and the, the social aspect of the networking around the educational meetings. I mean, it, it's a really good opportunity to get out from under your rock of four walls and teeth and get out there and actually meet some living, breathing people. That's great. And Ian, I'm sure everyone would agree that having some form of charitable experience would enrich their lives both professionally and personally. But what sort of things should you look for when you're looking for opportunities abroad? Number one, be passionate about the countries that you're looking to go into. So um, what's your passion? Where where do you feel a connection? Uh, for some people, be India, some people, Africa, South America, find that, find the, and, and locally as well. Let's not forget in our local context. So find the places where you want to have a real passion about. Look for the organizations that have done it before. Look for those organizations that have got experience, that are working hand in hand with local government and national government policy. Um, follow the BDA guidelines. There are some really good guidelines on, on volunteering, both uh, in the UK and internationally. Follow the GDC guidelines. Remember, the GDC reach is global, and it's important that you know the GDC give us a set of principles that are part of the ethical foundation of how we do clinical practice, whether it's on our doorstep or whether it's in another nation, that's important. And the final thing is be brave, just do it. Get a few people around you that's that will back you, cheer you on, and just go and do it because you will not regret it. Even if you just go for two weeks, you will change lives based on two weeks of your life that you give, just, just do it. That's terrific advice. I mean, particularly relating to the GDC's reach being global. It's so important anyone looking for overseas experience understands that. I've so enjoyed talking to you all. You've really highlighted some of the enormous variety of work and interest that it's possible to pursue alongside your clinical work. And it's clearly brought you all a tremendous amount of fulfillment and purpose, which rather than being something that puts more pressure on your clinical work has actually enhanced it. And I have to say that I really appreciate how honest you've been about how often making those initial jumps can be, can be daunting and scary. But by putting those fears aside and just going for it, it opens up unforetold opportunities and experiences. That brings this episode to an end. Thank you to my guests, Ian Wilson, Samir Khan and Hannah Woolnow. I wish you all the very best for the future. Thank you for having me. Goodbye now. Andrea, thank you. Samir, good to see you. Hannah, good to see you as well. Take care. Bye, Andrea. 
This is Chairside Conversations on Careers in Dentistry, a podcast for the British Dental Association. If you like this episode, please check out the others in this series. And to find your perfect job in dentistry, head over to bdjjobs.com.